Listen to something fresh. Listen to Salam Media. Assalamu alaikum, good afternoon, and a very warm welcome to the special focus on Salam Media with myself, Zahid Jadid. As you already know, I'll be keeping you company this Thursday afternoon, just like we do every Thursday between 3 and 4 p.m. to bring you up to speed with the latest developments in South Africa's ever-vibrant social and political landscape. Never a dull week in Mzansi, is there? So, of course, you can look forward to a packed show this afternoon. It is the first show for 2020. It's a brand new month, brand new year, brand new decade. And I think we are all refreshed, rejuvenated and overall excited for the brand new year that stands ahead of us. For some, it's a continuation, I suppose, of their quests after a well-deserved break. And for others, it's an excellent opportunity to start afresh, afresh with new goals, new dreams and new ambitions. Whatever it is for you, make sure that you maximize on this opportunity and make the best of 2020. So before we get down to any serious discussions on the show, I want to know what you've been up to lately. I'll tell you as soon as my leave took effect last year in December, I embarked on a seven-day social media detox challenge. So that meant no WhatsApp, no Facebook, no Instagram, and definitely no Twitter for myself for seven days. I think what it meant for myself, it actually led me to discover this unique sense of freedom and satisfaction. And I think it's only after we do this that we actually realize, yep, I'm addicted and I've become a captive to this useful piece of technology. Liberation is what I call it, and I'm glad I actually made it through to the end of the challenge. Um, So I challenge you to do the same. Let me know by announcing your break on Twitter. You can tag me at Zahi Jadid and let's get this trending with hashtag 7 day detox challenge. Yes, I think it should be quite difficult in the beginning, but let's just use the health benefits as motivation. So I also went to the home affairs yesterday. They've extended the hours until 7pm just I think for the first week of January or so. So it's still a long effort, a draining exercise. So on the first attempt last year, I think it was the 31st of December, we got to one office, the scanner wasn't working, so we decided to go to the next nearest office. And that was only uh, only when we got there where we turned away, as the branch had reached its quota of 60 tickets per day. But luckily everything got done yesterday, and that of course not without an entire day being spent in queues. Literally that, and that's no exaggeration. All right, now, today being the 9th of January, right? Today is the 9th day of the Gregorian calendar with 356 days left until 2021. So I think you've got enough time to plan and achieve accordingly. So yeah, let's see what's happening around the world. Interesting fact Um, Did you know that today is non-resident Indian Day, which is a celebratory observed in the Republic of India to mark the contribution of the overseas Indian community towards the development of India? Now, the day commemorates the return of Mahatma Gandhi from South Africa to Ahmedabad on 9th January 1915. Interestingly as well, yesterday was International Typing Day. These international commemorative days are quite interesting. I mean, what's there to be celebrated about typing? It turns out that the speed typing contest is an it is a contest organized on an annual basis uh, on this day in Malaysia to promote speed, accuracy, and efficiency in write, uh, in written communication among the public. And let's look at this day in history. So 
Today in the year 1349, that's exactly 670 years ago, the Jewish population of Basel in Switzerland were rounded up and incinerated. This was because the local residents believed that the Jews were the cause of the Black Death, which was one of the most devastating pandemics in human history. Now, the Black Death, also known as the Great Plague, resulted in the deaths of an estimated 75 to 200 million people in Eurasia, peaking in Europe from 1347 until 1351. Now, the plague created a number of religious, social and economic upheavals with profound effects on the cause of European history. The plague recurred, uh, occurred rather as outbreaks in Europe right until the 19th century. It is thought to have originated in the dry plains of Central Asia and then carried by along the Silk Route and was then dispersed across Europe by black rats on mer- merchant ships. Now let's take a quick glance at what's been happening on our shores. Load shedding, yes, that same dark Adobe has restarted. Stage 2 at least until this morning. What do you make of this? I know there's a meme saying something like the guy who is in charge of the power is back from leave, hence load shedding. Now, here's the strange part of this. Last year, the president promised that there won't be cuts until at least January 13th to make sure that the lights stay on through the holiday period. What does what do you make of this? Because what does this make of Cyril Ramaphosa's promise. I mean, it's only January the 9th and yet we are already seeing load shedding. So what is he going to do? Is he just going to be shocked every time or is he actually going to come with a magic plan to solve this and a concrete solution? That's, I think, what we all are looking for. So I think time will tell. And then the metric results have lifted the mood quite a positive indication with the statistics on that front and yes a big congratulation on uh, and pat on the back of each student who worked hard and proved themselves so here's what we're gonna talk about today news 24's Jan Herpel will come on uh, to outline what you can focus on in the political field and Ernst Rhodes will join us for the big discussion around farm attacks that's certainly something to listen out for So, yeah, I look forward to engaging with you on this discussion and throughout the show, in fact. So, you can send your comments on WhatsApp to 061-755-0355. That's the WhatsApp line. Or you can tweet them on Twitter. And when you do that, don't forget to tag me at Sahi Jadwit and at Salah Media. And please use the hashtag, the special focus. You can tweet anything. This is your platform, platform. And I certainly look forward to engaging with you. Listen to something fresh. Listen to Salam Media. Welcome back. Now, let's engage. Let's have a discussion. And of course, to do that, you can tweet and tag me at Zahi Jadud and at Salam Media. Alternatively, you can send your comments on WhatsApp to 061 Alright, so it is indeed the beginning of the year, so let's take it easy without involving the negative stories for now. So let's start with a quick look at the year ahead of us. 2019, I think, was quite interesting. We had the national elections in May, we had load shedding, we had the Zondo Commission of Inquiry into State Capture that continued to spew embarrassing revelations of corruption and so forth. So to speak about the year ahead, we are joined by News24 journalist Jan Gerpe. Hello and welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me. 
All right, now let's start here with the ANC's midterm policy conference, which is expected to take place this year, Jan. Ever since emerging as president of the party in December 2017 and then president of the country in February 2018, has Cyril Ramaphosa implemented any of the resolutions adopted at Nazareth in 2017? And what does the upcoming conference mean for his for his own future as well as the party's future? Well, I think um, there are elements in the ANC reason happy about the, the um, well, happy Mr. Ramaphosa first off, and they're using the um, resolutions as a way to, to, to have a go at him. I think if Parliament succeeds in amending the Constitution, um, then he could take that to the conference and say that this is one of the resolutions we have implemented. Um, the the um, resolutions they, they are probably going to use against him is stuff like the Reserve Bank, um, the reforms of ESCOM, etc. So it's been a bit of a mixed bag. Um, there, there has been, uh, if they... Um, um, amend the constitution to allow expropriation without compensation. There will be, you can take that and say that this is a resolution we have implemented, but there's also others that haven't been implemented. All right, and then, and what, it, yes? Yes, for him, um, if he goes into this um, conference and um, emerge victorious, that people uh, support him, they, they say we are of the way. Um, so obviously, this will strengthen presidency and the reforms. However, if there's enough people in, in the so-called fight back campaign, it will really um, tie his hands behind his back if, if they um, pass a motion supporting his presidency, etc. So what exactly is this midterm policy conference all about? What are we expecting to come out of this conference? Um, basically, it's, it's the, 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 every midterm um, they review the ANC's policy and to what effect government has been implementing it. Um, so um, it's basically t- taking stock of what government has done, what the ANC government has done, and what, what direction they should take further. And then, of course, the DA themselves as well will meet for a national congress in April this year to elect a leader to fill Musi Maimane's shoes after he resigned. What are we expecting there? Yes. Um, oh, this is vitally important for the DA, of course. I mean, they had the horrific um, 2019, um, and they need to, well, first of all, they need to get policies. People don't know what the DA's policies are. They don't know themselves sometimes, it seems. So that's one of the main things. They will have to knuckle down and come back with good policies that, that will get them votes back. Um, I expect Mr. Stenhausen, who is the interim leader at the moment, to, to um, be the, the favorite to, to lead the party after the conference. However, I expect that the, the, the um, social democrat grouping will also um, pose a candidate against him. I'm not sure who at this stage, but that seems that um, they, he will be challenged for the leadership. Um, I think it's very important that they come out of that unified and with a clear vision and that everybody knows what they're about. Otherwise, it, it, it will be another long year for them. Indeed, it would be interesting to see what's going to come out of that conference because, um, as you mentioned, 2019 was a horrific year for the Democratic Alliance. Now, someone who made many headlines last year is the public protector, Busisewe Mkwebani. Now, with Parliament having adopted rules for the removal of the head of a Chapter 9 institution, the 
DA had also applied to the National Assembly Speaker Tande Modise for the application of removal proceedings against Mkwebane. Modise is yet to re- rule on the matter. How do you think this will play out for her? Is 2020 going to be any better for her or would it might actually be worse? I, I think it will be worse. Um, I think and uh, will institute removal proceedings. I mean, there's, there's lots of grounds. Um, and I suspect at the moment that, that, that um, they will remove her. It obviously depends on the ANC, the, the majority. Um, if the ANC blocks this removal or do not remove her, that would be an indication that the, the so-called fight back campaign um, is strongest in the ANC caucus. At the moment, I don't, don't see it that way, but this will be a good indicator of that. But at the moment, I suspect that the, the removal proceedings would be instituted against her and that it would um, succeed. Um, I'm not sure how long this will take. This is, this is new ground for Parliament. We haven't done it before, of course. The rules are being adopted last year. So um, it will be very interesting to watch. Also, I suppose the public protector would try and you know, go the legal route and prevent it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uncharted waters. Mm. Now, Jan Gerber, Jacob Zuma might actually get his day in court this year. This is an interesting one. The pre-trial proceedings are set down for 4th of February in the Peter Maritzburg High Court, with supporters planning a month-long mobilization ahead of Zuma's appearance alongside a public yeah. campaign for funds towards his legal costs. What's the cause of action here? What's happening here? Well, I think it's, it's Zuma rallying. I mean, remember, keep in mind of his previous cases, there were massive amounts of people outside of court. Lately, it seems that there are less and less people coming to his events. Um, I, I think it's it's yeah, it's difficult to say what what the end game is here, because in this um, and well, he obviously needs the funds as well. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So it's uh, I'm I'm ready to, to read too much into it though. Um, I think he does still have pockets of support in KwaZulu Natal. But I, I'm not sure how much his support for the ANC on a, on a broader national level. Mm-hmm. Now, just to wrap up, the Zondo Commission, of course, having been deeply instrumental in revealing the rot across government, and that looks to set to run until the end of 2020 if Judge Raymond Zondo's application in this regard succeeds. Is there any chance of it continuing this year? And what else are we expecting here? Um, it will definitely continue this year, and I suspect they have so much ground to cover that it will continue into the next year as well. I mean, they really have a massive um, amount of work to do, and it seems that there's this snowballing effect. The more they, they uncover, the more the more stuff that seems to come out. So I, I suspect it will continue this year and possibly next year as well, um, if not longer. Um, the big thing is again, Mr. Zuma will have to to come back. Um, I think that's, that will probably be the most interesting thing. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't see that commission ending anytime soon. Mm-hmm. 2020 certainly promises to be an interesting year ahead. Thank you so much, Jan Herber, for your time and wish you all the best in the year ahead. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That was Jan Herber of News24 painting us a picture of what to expect in 2020. Let's take a break and when we get back, we'll get down to more serious discussion with AfriForum's Ernst Stewart's. Stay tuned. Listen to something fresh. Listen to Salam Media.
Welcome back to the special focus with myself, Sahih Jadud and Salam Media. Now, just before we begin with our major story for this week, which is farm attacks and farm murders, let me first remind you that you can tweet your comments and suggestions. And when you do that, tag me at Sahih Jadud or at Salam Media. And please do use the hashtag, the special focus, so that we can form the trend. You can also send them to 061-766-0355. That's 061-766-0355. That's the number for your WhatsApp messages and your WhatsApp voice notes. That being said, let's begin. Now, South African farm attacks. These are violent crimes, including murder, assault and robbery that take place on farms in South Africa. These attacks target farmers who are usually white and farm workers who are usually black. The term has no formal legal definition, but such attacks have been the subject of discussion by media and public figures in South Africa and abroad. There is insufficient data to reliably estimate a murder rate for South African farmers. However, South African government data indicated between 58 and 74 murders on farms annually in the period 2015 to 2017. And that's out of an annual murder count of nearly 20,000 total murders in South Africa. These figures are broadly consistent with figures collected by the Transvaal Agricultural Union, which is a farmers' union. Due to the problems associated with counting the number of South African farmers and farm murders, it is unclear whether farmers are at greater risk of being murdered than other South Africans. Now, unsubstantiated claims that such attacks on farmers disproportionately target whites are a key element of the white genocide conspiracy theory and have become a common talking point among white nationalists worldwide. However, there are no reliable figures that suggest that white farmers are being targeted in particular or that they are at a disproportionate risk of being killed. The government of South Africa and other analysts maintain that farm attacks are part of a broader crime problem in South Africa and do not have a racial motivation. So to unpack this further, we are speaking to Ernst, Mr. Ernst Ruiz, who is the head of policy and action at AFI Forum. Hello, Mr. Ruiz, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. All right. So first and foremost, why do you believe that farm murders and attacks have been buried and kept away from the national spotlight. And why do you think that this should be given more attention, despite the fact that incidence of crime is relevant to nearly every South African? Well, it's certainly true that crime is a problem for for virtually every person living in South Africa. Um, and it's certainly true that, that farm attacks are not the, the only really horrendous crime in South Africa. We know about some really horrible uh, type of crimes happening with regard to gang-related violence and some of the things we see in the xenophobic violence is another example. Some of the things we see in some of the townships in South Africa. So, so crime is a problem in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Our position with regard to farm murders is, as a matter of fact, contrary to popular belief, the same as our position with regard to other crimes. So we are not saying that farm murders should receive special treatment. What we are saying is it should receive equal treatment. And what we mean by that is that farm murders is a very unique crime um, in terms of the way it's being executed, in terms of the consequences thereof, in terms of where it takes place and far away from police stations and so forth. And the basic policing principle that a, uh, that, that a government should follow or a police service should follow is that when we deal with unique crimes, then we should have a unique and a focused counter strategy. So we have, we have these counter strategies for for example, violence against women and children, and we support that. And then there's a counter strategy for 
for catching traumatized and for copper cable theft and for gang-related violence. And all of these crimes are deserving of unique counter strategies. So when we don't start, start talking about farm murders, then suddenly the argument is, no, it's just normal crime or we shouldn't have a focused counter strategy. And that's what our main concern is with this issue. Okay, so you do say that farm murders and attacks should be treated equally as uh, as the bro- broader crime problem in South Africa. However, when you do mention that it's um, w- that you mention it's unique, what exactly is meant by this? Yeah, so, so we're saying it should we're saying it should be treated equally with other unique crimes. And what we mean by that is, as is the case with other unique crimes, they must be a unique and a focused and a deliberate counter strategy by the police to prevent these attacks. Um, and there are four reasons why these attacks are farm attacks are unique. The one is the frequency thereof, in other words, how often does it take place? And more or less, you can say there's about two farm attacks every day in South Africa, and there's about one or two farm murders per week uh, in South Africa, if you take a, an average from a couple of years, which is extremely high ratio, especially if you consider that there aren't that many farmers in, in, in South Africa. Um, so that's the first reason why it's unique. The second reason is is the unique levels of brutality that we see in these crimes. Uh, as far as I know, there are only two types of crimes in South Africa that are as brutal as this, and it's farm murders and gang-related violence uh, in terms of people being tortured and, uh, and so forth. And then the third reason why it's unique is the unique consequences thereof, and that's the argument with, for example, copper cable theft. The consequences for the economy uh, if, these, if this particular crime isn't addressed. Uh, because farmers are employers, they are creators of food for the country, and uh, a lot of the country's stability depends on the agricultural sector. And then the fourth reason is the least controversial of the four, and it's probably the most important simply from a practical perspective, and that's the fact that farm, farmers live in unique circumstances. They are far away from police stations, they are far away from their neighbours. So if you are attacked on your farm and you scream, no one's going to hear you. Even in some cases, if you fire a gunshot, there's a great chance that no one's going to hear you. Then we have a problem with dirt roads, farms that are inaccessible, uh, cell phone signal, and so forth. So these four reasons for us say that that there should be a focused and a deliberate counter strategy to prevent these attacks from happening. And just on your fourth point, uh, your third point rather there, um, what exactly are the consequences of farm murders and attacks? especially on the economy. Yeah, so so there's been some attempts to calculate, to quantify the effect on the economy, to say, what what is, can you you reduce it to a rand value? If a farmer is murdered, how much does the economy do? And there was one study that found, I think, 2 million, or there were some calculations made, but the problem with with, with the calculations is that every farm is different in terms of what are they farming with and how productive is the farm. In, in, some, in many of the cases, production on the farm stops completely, um, which means that the people working there do their jobs and so forth. And in some cases, the farm is, is picked up again. And I'm talking now about if the commercial farmer himself or herself is murdered. Um, but there's a very interesting dimension to that that I think is underestimated in terms of the impact on the economy. It's farm murders have a very significant impact in increasing inequality. And the reason why is to be a farmer is a very, it's a scarce skill. And not anybody can, can be a farmer. I, I wouldn't, I know for a fact, I wouldn't, wouldn't succeed if I was to be a commercial farmer because it's, it's a very scientific uh, occupation. It's a business that you have to 
you know, with a very scientific approach to be a mm-hmm. successful commercial farmer. So if the farmer is murdered, what happens is uh, many of the people working for that farmer, in many of the cases, lose their jobs. In other words, the poor become poorer. But what also happens is because of the fact, because of the supply and demand principle, because there are fewer farmers each time a farmer is murdered, the premium placed on being a farmer is higher. In other words, the consequence of is a farmer that the few farmers that remain get paid more because they, their skills become more and more scarce. So in other words, in, in a certain context, you could say the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. So, so there's, there's definitely an inequality dimension to this as well. Now, let's just look at the statistics, right? There is insufficient data to reliably estimate a murder rate for South African farmers. South African government data indicated between 58 and 74 murders on farms annually in the period between 2015 and 2017. And that's out of an annual murder count of 20,000 total murders in South Africa. Now, due to the problems associated with counting the number of South African farmers and farm murders, it is unclear whether farmers are at greater risk of being murdered than other South Africans. But now, so clearly everyone in South Africa is 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 facing this broader problem of crime. However, do you think that farm attacks could have racial motivation? Just repeat the last sentence. I couldn't hear the last sentence. So, do you think that farm attacks could have a, ro- a racial motivation? Um, well, let me, let me start with, with the first part about calculating the, the ratio. It is true, I think that's one of the most difficult things, is calculating the ratio. Although it's not impossible to calculate, you can at least calculate uh, plausible ranges in which these attacks take place. So, it's, it's not possible to calculate the broad farm murder ratio, or at least very, very difficult or nearly impossible. And the reason, therefore, is anybody being you can be victims of farm attacks or farm murders. If we go to a farm and there's a farm murder, a farm attack, and we get murdered. So to, to calculate the ratio, you need to determine how many people are there uh, who could potentially be the victims, and then how many people, have, how many of them have been murdered. But what is slightly easier to calculate is the ratio at which commercial farmers are murdered. Because we know more or less how many commercial farmers there are in South Africa. And if you take all the farm murders and you say, let's count only those who are the commercial farmers, then you could make some form of a calculation. Um, and yes, it, it's few if you consider there's been 20,000 murders in, in a year in South Africa. But you have to consider the size of the group. So there were 20,000 murders out of, uh, what, what's the number now, Six, 70 million people, above 50 million people at least in South Africa. Mm-hmm. But there's only about... 30 and 40,000 commercial farmers. So, so, that's, so, so you say there's a small amount, but it's within a very small pool. But so, so yes, I think that, that is in terms of the motivation, there's not been sufficient research to date with regard to what the motivations are. What I can say is if you look at individual cases uh, of farmers and you look at individual incidents where, you, where, where the perpetrator has said what their motivations were, there's a variety of factors. And, and I think we run the risk of oversimplifying if we reduce it to a single cause. And what I mean by that is an attacker can have multiple motives. You can uh, you can attack a farm because you are poor and you want money. And while that's your motivation, you could also have a racial motivation. For example, to say, I want to steal from someone, but I don't want to steal from someone that has the same skin color as me, for example. Or that could also be combined with with um, labour-related disputes. So the, the employee had a 
fight with a farmer and now he's attacking the farm, although we know that that's overstated the, the extent to which that is happening. So there's multiple motives, and it's, and it's uh, the attempts that have been made today to reduce it to, to statistics in terms of how many cases are motivated by this or that has been flawed, at least in our, in our regard. And of course, the statistics on farm murders spark much debate, and they have done so in the past. And in fact, there have been claims that being a poli- uh, being a farmer is actually could actually be more dangerous than being a policeman, for example. So, what's the backing behind such a claim? Yeah. So the backing behind that is, I believe it was the year two thousand and eleven. Um, I think it was Bekitele at the time, uh, the police minister or commissioner had a campaign against these killings. And they said out of the police force of so many people, so many of the police were murdered. So you can calculate it. You can say there were, I think, 190 or 180,000 police officers, and out of them, this amount were murdered in one year. And then you can calculate that, and you you reduce it to a ratio per 100,000. So if there's 100,000 police officers, then in one year, I believe the number was 50 or 55. 100,000 police officers were murdered. And now what you can do is you can go with farm murders and you can make a calculation, as I explained earlier, you can say how many, you can at least do it with commercial farmers. You can say how many commercial farmers are there and how many commercial farmers were murdered in one year, and then you make a calculation for 100,000. And the, the calculation comes close to about about 100 per 100,000. So in other words, if you calculate the per 100,000 ratio at which police officers are murdered, which you would assume should be high in South Africa, and it is very high, and you calculate the per 100,000 ratio at which commercial farmers are murdered, which you would assume should be low because it's supposed to be low, then you find that the ratio at which commercial farmers are murdered is about, more or less, you could say double that at which police officers are murdered. All right, let's leave it there for now. Let's take a short break, and when we get back, we'll unpack this further. Stay tuned. Listen to something fresh. Listen to Salam Media. Welcome back to the special focus. Welcome back to Salam Media. Now, let's just have a quick look at one of the tweets which have come relating to this discussion around farm attacks and farm murders. Now, at Judge Justin Triple Seven tweets an interesting infographic which claims that 48 farm murders took place during the year 2019. Now, he captions it saying, These are the numbers from the 1st of January 2019 until the 31st of December 2019. We had all these farm attacks. Look at the number of murders. 48. There are countries in this world who don't even come close to this many murders in one year. Shocking. Does the South African president still refuse to acknowledge this? So, yes, we are in discussion with AfriForum's head of policy. Certainly an interesting conversation about farm murders and attacks in South Africa. Now, Mr. Roots, way back then, President Nelson Mandela launched a rural protection plan. Now, this protection plan, which was meant to fill in the gaps, uh, this protection plan was meant to fill in the gaps where police have fallen short due to the sheer remoteness of farms. Has this delivered on its mandate? No. Um, what what we've seen since, let's say, since, since the new South Africa, since 1994, um, is under President Nelson Mandela, I think you could say that it was a power that um, Nelson Mandela, at least as president, took a firm stance against 
car murders. He made a speech about it. He even organized a national summit, uh, you know, to, to develop a counter strategy, which is what we believe we should have. And a counter strategy that's not only on paper, but one that's been implemented in practice. So, so I think you could say that it was a priority for Nelson Mandela. But then, in 1997, as you mentioned, and then uh, at around the year 2003, government started deprioritizing their response to farm murders. So what happened in 2003 was, uh, without any prior notice, without any discussion with the relevant stakeholders and so forth, during the State of the Nation address, uh, President Sablombeck announced that the commando system would be shut down, which was, of course, a system in which farmers were involved to look after their own safety and so forth. Then in 2007, the police announced that no further statistics would be released with regard to farm attacks. And, and farm murders. Um, and then we, we had the situation where, despite the fact that there was a decrease in the numbers and then it started increasing again slowly, you had uh, senior politicians downplaying these attacks and saying, oh, yes, well, you must remember the farmers are only being murdered because they abuse their workers, which is which is true, you know, according to government research, in about 1% one, 1 of the cases, 1 or 2%. So, so, so it certainly was a priority. And then it was, it, since starting in 2003, it's been uh, excessively downplayed by, by the authorities in this country. And so on the point of politicians, do you think that there might be a link between political left-wing rhetoric and farm attacks? Well, uh, there's certainly, there's definitely a link and, and we can prove that. The question is how big is that link or, or what is the extent of farm attacks being committed as a result of rhetoric. So uh, we do know, for example, that there are farm murderers, people who are in prison, who have said that they were influenced by politics. Um, uh, the first example that we know of was in, I think, 1993, was a person called Ntutuko Twene, who murdered a farmer called Godfrey uh, Ewer. Uh, uh, Godfrey Ewer. And um, he said, Ntutuko Twene, who committed the murder, said, under oath that he committed the murder because he was influenced by the singing of the song Kill the Bird, Kill the Farmer. And he didn't have anything against this farmer in particular. He was just a white farmer at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and we've had other examples. Just, just, I think in this week, we had another example of a farm attack being committed um, where the, the attackers spray-painted the words Kill the Bird on, on the farmer's vehicle. And we've had several such cases. There were even one case, I think, near Allendale, where an elderly, two elderly ladies were severely tortured, uh, brutally, one of the most brutal farm murders we've seen to date. And the, the attackers actually took the blood of the victim and wrote the words, kill the boer, on, on the wall. Um, so we've had such cases. We've had people chanting EFF slogans at farm attacks um, and, and so forth. So I'm not saying that every single farm attack is the result of some political motive, but to deny that it exists is just magnificent. So now I have seen reports in which AfriForum is portrayed somewhat as a white nationalist movement, which seems to be claiming mm-hmm. that there's nearly a white genocide, if we could call it that. So is this true? No, as a matter of fact, AfriForum has, has taken a public stance against white nationalism. If you go, I'm sure if you go on Google and you search uh, as a form of white nationalism, you would probably find at least one of the top results would be an article written by me entitled Every Forum's Rejection of White Nationalism. Um, and, and so 
we do as now as we're doing now, we do media interviews and so forth. We do it in English. We show our press statements in English and, and so forth. So on the issue of white genocide, it's the strangest thing because we have we have won multiple cases with the press ombudsman um, with regard to organisations, news outlets describing Afriforum as an organisation that promotes the white genocide narrative. While Afriforum has not done that, as a matter of fact, I've uh, we've repeatedly um, taken a stance against this idea that there's a white, narrative, white genocide happening in South Africa. I've written a book on pharma that's called Kill the Boy, and there's, there's a whole chapter dedicated to explaining why it's simply incorrect to describe this as, as a white genocide. Um, but despite that, we have some journalists, not all, it's actually a very small few, who keep writing and referring to Afroforum as an organization that promotes the idea of, of, of a white genocide. And it's, as I said, we've had we've won repeated cases with, uh, at the press ombudsman on this because that's simply not our position. And it's easy to prove that, that Afroforum is not claiming that there's a genocide happening in South Africa. All right. Now, you would recall that some time back you went on a tour to the United States to draw attention on this serious matter. Now, could this now be interpreted as your last resort and that you're tired of pushing local authorities to act? You could, you could, I wouldn't describe it as such, but I think there's an element of truth in, in what you're saying in the sense that, that we don't think it's the last resort, but we do think that it's an important avenue that we need to open. Um, and we've seen that type of approach with great success in many places in the world, and especially in South Africa with, with the ANC. We know the, the significant impact that international pressure, as a result of the ANC's international campaign, had on, on the apartheid government in getting, you know, uh, getting that system to a fall. So our, our approach with it is to say, well, there are a lot of things locally that we need to do. We need to put pressure on government. We should write to them, we should meet with them, we should have to do petitions, we should do protest marches, we should do court cases, we should do all of that, and we we are continuing with that, but we also need to put more international pressure. So what we are trying to achieve with our trip to the United States, and we're going back there, by the way, in, in, in February, um, is to raise awareness about the problem in South Africa, and to get people across the world to speak out about the problem, and to put, at least when we're talking with governments, to put diplomatic pressure on, on, on the South African government. Now we're doing this, I know that's not the topic of discussion currently, but we're doing this with farm murders and with expropriation of compensation. To ask people, when you engage with the South African government, ask them about what's happening on the farms in South Africa. Ask them about farm murders. Ask them why, what are they doing? Why aren't they doing enough? Why aren't they doing more? And then, and then also one of the main issues that we're pushing is, is, is protection of property rights. And so just could you explain to us what exactly do you intend on achieving by taking this internationally? Um, don't you, many people would come with the argument that it's a South African issue and it should be sorted out uh, in a South African way by South Africans themselves. Yes, well, I, I would agree with the argument that it's a South African issue and it must be sorted out within South Africa. The problem is that it isn't being sorted out within South Africa. So we, we have done... Uh, We've done so many things with regard to raising awareness on farm matters. We've had, as I said, we've had numerous protest gatherings. We've had numerous petitions. We've had numerous meetings with government. We've had numerous brief length ceremonies, conferences, reports, anything you can think of. Uh, if there's something you can think of that we haven't thought of, we will 
awareness and to put pressure on the South African government um, to do more about this problem. And and sometimes, um, you know, government officials and especially politicians change, and some of them are more inclined to do something, and others are less inclined. So we believe, and we've seen it, it with a, with a degree of success already, that if we can get people abroad talking, especially journalists abroad and maybe even governments abroad, talking about this problem um, and have putting some form of diplomat- diplomatic pressure on the South African government, um, the chances or the prospects of success is much bigger. And as I said, we, we saw the ANC do that with much success. They had a much more aggressive uh, campaign. Of course, the circumstances were different. Um, but they had a much more aggressive campaign with regard to, to you know, taking a stance, you could almost say, against South Africa. Now, that's not what we are doing. We are simply saying that we, what we are saying to people all over the world is we, we are South Africans. We want to remain in South Africa. We want to fix the problems in South Africa. We don't want anyone else to fix the problems on our behalf. Uh, we don't want, we're not expecting, you know, the U.S. president or someone to get on a jet and fly to South Africa and fix our problems. So that's firstly not going to happen, not what's going to happen. But secondly, it, you know, we have to fix the problems ourselves. But if we can get diplomatic pressure or, or pressure in terms of public sentiment to, on the South African government to do more, then we believe that it's, it's useful to, to do that and it's worth, it's worth spending time on achieving that. Okay, just quickly now, Mr. Roots, and we'll wrap up on this. What exactly does AfriForum want from government to address this matter? So, uh, we believe that the problem must be, there's a, a two-pronged two solution in our view. We're not expecting government to solve the problem exclusively or to solve the problem on our behalf because we believe, realistically speaking, and it's not only a South African thing, it's a global thing, that the trend worldwide in terms of fighting crime is that communities must become more involved. So we spend a lot of time getting people to become more involved. In other words, you know, organizing community safety initiatives to drive patrols in their areas with, in, in cooperation with the police, not in competition with them, uh, to go to the police station to say, how can we help? So there's a very strong focus on getting the community more involved and people more involved to support the police in this. But then what we expect government to do is to, to have a to develop a focused counter strategy, and not only to have it on paper, but to actually execute it or implement it. So you could say, yes, there's a rural safety strategy that the police has. It's a document that was written in a, in a shelf somewhere, but it's not being implemented. Uh, and there's many ways I can elaborate on that. So one example is, according to the rural safety strategy, there's supposed to be vehicles in rural areas, dispatched to, to rural areas to look after rural safety. But you find there's vehicles driving around in Brooklyn and in Sandton and, and, and so forth. So, so I think to sum it up, what we want government to do is to say, to acknowledge this is a problem. It's not the only crime problem in South Africa, uh, but it is a problem. It's one of the very unique problems. And we need to develop a focused counter strategy to say, what are the causes of this? How can we address it? And unfortunately, we have to concede or acknowledge that one of the causes is, is political rhetoric. Because um, even if it's not resulting in these attacks directly, what we do find is that this rhetoric, I'm talking about hate speech and songs sung about killing farmers and so forth, mm. it, it creates a political climate in which these type of things are romanticized. And that's something that, that should also stop. All right. That's where we leave it for now. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Roots. Thank you. It was wonderful speaking to you.
that was a really interesting discussion with Ernst Ritz. So there you have it, Mr. Ritz himself coming out quite clearly, I feel, to critics who have portrayed Afriforum as a white nationalist movement. So he actually claims that Afriforum is in fact in agreement with most organizations that farm attacks should be classified just as well as other for other acts of crime in South Africa. Now, Ritz is the head of policy and action of AfriForum and the author of Kill the Poor book. And with that, we've reached the end of our very first show for 2020. Um, thank you to all of you who have sent in your comments. Unfortunately, we are really tight for time and could not read them. Uh, so we do keep them coming. I will certainly retweet them so we can continue this discussion off air. It's been a privilege to be your host and we'll do this again, same time, same place next week.